0: The more oxidative stress you have in the body, the sicker you are, the more likely you're gonna have higher levels of senescent cells and the more likely viruses are able to infect your own cell. So one of the first line defenses then is to have a low amount of oxidative stress and have healthy cells because unhealthy cells
1: are more susceptible to infection. Welcome to the Seamland Podcast. I'm your host Seamland. Today we talk with Dr. James DiNickel-Antonio. James is a cardiovascular research scientist and doctor of pharmacy. Dr. James and I co-authored a book called The Immunity Fix. It's a comprehensive guide to strengthening your immune system, fighting infections, and reversing chronic disease that takes into account all aspects of your health. You can get The Immunity Fix on Amazon. James, welcome back to the show. Sim, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm uh, <laughs> glad to have you on on the show, and uh, we we wrote a book, so uh, it's a special occasion <laughs> to do a podcast.
0: It's a it's a good time to celebrate. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So uh, the book is the Immunity Fix, and uh, like uh, you uh, reached out to me, maybe like it was in uh, May or June uh, this year, and uh, you're gonna propose the idea of let's let's write a book together, and yeah, it was a uh, kind of a uh, you know, it's a very um, hot topic at these times the immune system and such Uh, so like what what was the main kind of reason why would you would you like want to uh, write a book about immunity
0: well i think i mean obviously from a public health standpoint i think it's important um and i had been publishing you know several academic papers about you know potential ways to boost the immune system i figured you know might as well put out a book to get to get it out to you know more people Mm. and so i think you know, a lot in the news, we hear a ton about, right, masks or um, social distancing and things like that. And that's fine. But, you know, people do need to understand that they have control of their own health, um, and their own immune health. So I think that this book was really, you know, to bring attention to that, because I think it's important for people to know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And uh, like, um, although uh, the immune system is very, uh, you know, uh, Relevant at this time of the year and this year especially but it's also something that you uh, you, you could use uh, all the time so to say so it's not a book about uh, specific events at this time It's a book that I think uh, will also kind of stand the test of time so to say because uh, we do cover basically uh, everything related to the immune system uh, autoimmunity how the immune system works uh, inflammation and uh, Yeah, like everything else how do you strengthen it and the book is like maybe like 400 pages uh, around that and like 2400 references, so it's not it's it's pretty uh, dense and full of all the information on the research that you've done
0: Yeah, and I think um, like you said it takes a it takes a broad approach So it's more about you know, not just you know what supplements but like a whole lifestyle um, sunlight sleep, right? Um, you know diet exercise like everything that can potentially help the immune system and ultimately right um your immune system if you're if you're improving the health of your immune system you're going to improve the health of you know many other things because your immune system is involved with inflammation right or autoimmune disease or you know taking care of precancerous cells so ultimately anything that helps fix the immune system should translate to better overall health
1: yeah yeah absolutely and uh Uh, yeah, it kind of carries over to other things. And, like, there are many things that actually affect the immune system as well. So you you can't take it uh, very narrowly. Uh, So, like, you know, your metabolic health is going to affect the immune system. Your kind of age or, like, your, let's say, biological age uh, is going to affect it. Uh, Your uh, sleep schedule, your exercise routine, your your nutrient uh, status. So, yeah, it has to be very um, all-encompassing almost.
0: Yeah, exactly. And... I think too, what was what was important to me for the book was to get people to understand how the immune system works and how nutrients sort of interact with the immune system. So I think that the you know, the book lays that out very well. And so people can really understand which nutrients interact with the immune system and which nutrients are more important than others. And what's like an optimal intake um, in the diet or via supplementation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So maybe let's uh, start off with uh, some of that. So uh, yeah, the immune system does need uh, a whole lot of nutrients to function optimally, and uh, like the most common one, like people know about, is probably like a vitamin D. So uh, yeah, like how how does vitamin D affect the immune system, and uh, like yeah, how how can we optimize it?
0: Yeah, so I mean, taking just a step back. in regards to like your own body's defenses, right? The first line of defense, I guess you could say against infection would be your skin, Um, mucous membranes, um, epithelial barriers, and endothelial barriers. And so, you know, the nutrients that are important um, for epithelial health, so let's say the epithelia around your lungs is vitamin D. And for mucous membrane health, vitamin A and vitamin B2, are very important for mucous membrane health. So essentially a virus has to drill through the mucous membrane first in order to even have the opportunity to infect you. So if you have a good, strong mucous membrane, um, that is your first line of defense against any infection. And that can start breaking down as what me and you discuss on immunosenescence as your body, not only does the immune cells kind of you know go down and they lose their function at, with age, but your mucous membrane as well sort of lose their integrity Um, and so so starting out with the nasal passages and the throat that's where typically people get infected first so if you can have a strong mucous membrane strong epithelium strong endothelium that's going to be really important and then you know collagen obviously is important for that as well now going down to the the intestinal tract you have stomach acid that produces uh, well, that is formed from partly hydrochloric acid. And that in order to get hydrochloric acid to form, you need chloride, and you can only get that through salt. So, salt is important for another first line of defense, which is stomach acid to sort of degrade any pathogens that could be absorbed in the first place. Um, and then our body actually uses salt, particularly chloride, to secrete hypochlorous acid to kill cells. So, you have like this first line of defense of mucous membranes, your your epithelial and endothelium barriers, and then your stomach acid. And so you can right away see that nutrients are playing an important role there. In -hmm. regards to vitamin D, almost every single immune cell has a vitamin D receptor. And in order for vitamin D to activate those receptors on immune cells, it has to be the active form of vitamin D, which is calcitriol. And in order to activate vitamin D, you have to have good magnesium status. So again, this just kind of shows you that you can't just take vitamin D and hope everything's going to be okay. There are other nutrients that sort of allow vitamin D to work. But from a a sort of broad perspective, um, vitamin D helps us produce something called cathelicidins and defensins. And so these are basically antimicrobial and antiviral peptides. And again, that you need the active form of vitamin D in order to do that. And so um, probably the nutrient that is associated with the highest, if you're deficient in it, that's associated with the highest sort of mortality and worse outcomes with COVID is vitamin D deficiency. Um, Basically, if you're deficient in vitamin D, there's a tenfold higher risk of mortality if you're infected with COVID versus if you have sufficient levels.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is uh, pretty uh, well documented that you know vitamin D deficiency is linked to not only like a more severe symptoms of COVID, but also just autoimmune disease in general and uh, influenza infections. So yeah, it's uh, quite central to all the immune cells, and uh, yeah, like for example in the case of uh, like COVID, then uh, this uh, vitamin D deficiency is also associated with uh, this pro-inflammatory kind of um, environment that is uh, characterized by this particular damage associated protein like HMGB1 which is a mouthful but essentially it's, it is found to be like a very uh, important inf- pro-inflammatory uh, factor that does get raised uh, during infections and injuries especially uh, during COVID and that leads to this uh, cytokine storm so it is uh, vitamin D is important for like uh, lowering that uh, pro-inflammatory signature as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, so essentially vitamin D helps control the cytokines that are released from the immune cells. That's actually, you know, how it works when it binds to the receptors. So it, essentially it sort of helps balance out the immune system. And so, um, it helps sort of increase anti-inflammatory cytokines and it sort of reduces pro-inflammatory cytokines. That's kind of how it works. And then, um, what it also helps to do is again, the active form of vitamin D Um, Helps to reduce uh, senescent cell formation and the pro inflammatory cytokines that are released from senescent cells. And if people don't know what senescent cells are, essentially, when a cell gets damaged um, to a certain point, it becomes this senescent cell, which is essentially like these we call them zombie cells for the lay person. But they're really not just like dormant, they actually have Mm. their own phenotype, which is a pro inflammatory phenotype, and they can start sort of damaging nearby cells. And senescent cells are more susceptible to viral infection as well. And so the more oxidative stress you have in the body, the sicker you are, the more likely you're going to have higher levels of senescent cells and the more likely viruses are able to infect your own cell. So one of the first line defenses then is to have a low amount of oxidative stress and have healthy cells because unhealthy cells are more susceptible to infection and you'll have a higher viral load and that higher viral load will lead to more killing of your cells because the virus has to hack your own host machinery to reproduce. And the only way to kill a virus is to kill yourself. So if you can prevent the virus from infecting a lot of your cells, you're going to prevent yourself from having to kill a lot of your own cells.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, Usually, like what, what I kind of figured, discovered during the writing of the book was one of the, one of the biggest things was that uh, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily like the virus that's always killing the person. It's, it's more like the, uh, the uh, overreaction that the body creates in response to the virus, which is essentially the cytokine storm, this uh, massive production of these pro-inflammatory cytokines that uh, lead to like lung injury and sepsis and eventually organ failure and uh, death.
0: Exactly. That, that's 100% correct. And sort of when I was doing some of, the, some of my research on the topic, I was trying to understand essentially if there were things that would cause an increase in the inflammatory cytokine storm. And what, what seems to be a large driver, it's not necessarily the only driver, but there are two, two primary things that seem to be happening to people who are having worse outcomes with COVID – one is they don't produce as many type 1 interferons. So type 1 interferons are produced um, by macrophages and monocytes to sort of interfere with, with viruses. They sort of inhibit viral replication, and they have a, a bunch of other functions as well. But as we age, our production and our, and our function of interferons actually goes down. So we published a paper on potential supplements that could help boost that, and we cover that in the book. And then the second factor is there's a reduction in the cytotoxicity of the CD8 T killer cells. And essentially, uh, those particular cells will seek out the virus and kill it in a a soft, non-inflammatory, controlled way. It's called apoptosis. Other parts of the immune system, though, aren't sort of target specific to a virus. For example, macrophages, monocytes, and neutrophils Kill in a highly inflammatory sort of non-specific way. So what you have is a reduction in the cytotoxicity of your CD8 killer cells from eating a poor diet, not exercising, and that, that forces the inflammatory part of the immune system to start having to kill the virus instead of the CD8 killer cells. So now you have pro-inflammatory killing of the virus, and it starts killing healthy cells around your own cells that are infected with the virus. So if you can figure out ways to boost CD8T killer cell cytotoxicity and levels and also CD4, CD4s 4 cd and B cells as well, any part of the adaptive immune system is going to be beneficial to potentially reducing cytokine storm.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the... Uh... Key uh, things that leads to the uh, reduced cytotoxicity of uh, these uh, T cells is uh, like a magnesium deficiency, so you you wrote uh, like a pretty uh, big uh, paper about it as well, and you and we cover like pre- pretty uh, revealing studies in the book uh, how this uh, magnesium deficiency leads to this uh, immunodeficiency, basically where the body is very susceptible to uh, these uh, real problems
0: yeah that 's a good point, so essentially. So if you look at um, people who have genetically low intracellular free magnesium, so there's, there's bound magnesium in the body, things that are bound to like proteins and DNA and ATP, and then there's your free ionic magnesium, which is actually the active form of magnesium. Well, inside the cell, that free ionic magnesium controls the natural killer receptors on both CDAT killer cells and natural killer cells. As the level of that free ionic magnesium goes down in those cells, the cytotoxicity of those cells goes down. So people who have a syndrome called X-Men disease, who have this low magnesium in the cell, they have chronic Epstein-Barr virus um, sort of activation. So 95% of everyone around the world is globally infected with Epstein-Barr. You just don't even know it. Um, some people will get mononucleosis from it, you know, particularly usually in your teenage years. Um, but some people don't show any symptoms, but people who have chronically low intracellular magnesium have chronically activated Epstein-Barr virus and a significant increased risk of lymphoma. Um, so what this is sort of showing you is that nutrients control the function of your immune cells, which then can control your risk of cancer.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, what would be, uh, like a uh, optimal way to, l- l- yeah, like let's, let's, let's also cover the vitamin D, like uh, how much vitamin D should you have and, uh, uh, what's the kind of recommended way of getting it?
0: Well, I think you and I both, both agree that the the best way is probably through sunlight, like, um, appropriately getting sunlight, not burning because sunlight, um, activates, Well, sunlight, first of all, it consists of infrared, um, red light, UVA, UVB. Um, It has a bunch of, you know, different spectrums of light. And we are essentially like these batteries that get activated with sunlight. And so you're not only producing vitamin D when you get sunlight, but you're obviously increasing melatonin and infrared receptors are being activated, which improves production of ATP and you know numerous other things, insulin sensitivity, boosts nitric oxide, which has antiviral effects itself. So if you can get appropriate sunlight exposure, you're not only going to get you know vi- the benefits of vitamin D, um, but you're also going to get the other benefits right through nitric oxide and other things. Um, if you can't though, in the winter like what's happening now, if you can't get vitamin D through sunlight um, diet or supplements as close to nature as possible. Like cod liver oil, um, is a, is a potential good way, but even just a vitamin D supplement as well, like 2000 international units per day is usually a good starting point. The key with vitamin D though, is that you want to make sure your levels of vitamin A are appropriate. Your levels of K2 are appropriate and magnesium. Because if you just take high doses of vitamin D, basically fat-soluble vitamins compete for absorption. So essentially, if you take high doses of vitamin D, you're going to automatically increase the need for all your other fat-soluble vitamins, so A, E, and K. Um, So you got to make sure you're adequate on vitamin A, which which is pretty high in things like liver, eggs, and vitamin K2. And then the magnesium is important as well to activate the vitamin D.
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree that the sunlight is the best source of getting it and food is also pretty good. But uh, if you are, let's say, uh, very low in vitamin D and you're deficient, then yeah, the smart thing to kind of boost it up as fast as possible would be to take a supplement. And uh, like the research that, we, that we've seen is kind of indicates that uh, the best range to be at is like a 40 to like 70 milligrams per deciliter for vitamin D, yeah. Uh, your vitamin b uh, blood status. and uh if you're low lower than that, then your like risk of getting in uh serious uh, infections uh or serious outcomes from covid nineteen is also <laughs> quite dramatically high and uh, yeah like if you are in this risk group uh then uh, using as a supplement in the short term can be uh, pretty uh, effective to so gonna just raise your levels uh, to the uh, optimal range
0: yeah, and I think um we still don't exactly know you know, what that optimal range is. But I agree that we definitely want to be at about 31 nanograms per ml or higher. And again, it's, if you take vitamin D as a supplement, you want to make sure at least a vitamin A, vitamin K and magnesium are all optimized first before you take vitamin D.
1: Yeah. And uh, what about magnesium? How, How can you get magnesium? So, well, we
0: used to get it through diet and now um, with how we produce crops. Uh, so we've sort of shifted away from regenerative farming, which is using things like manure for now chemical fertilizers. And the problem with uh, chemical fertilizers is they reduce the nutrients in our food. And so um, data back from 1940 uh, comparing basically, you know, 60 to 80 years ago, the foods are now about 20 to 40% lower in magnesium for vegetables and animal foods are anywhere from like 10 to 20% lower. So if you can, you want to try to always eat organic or foods from regenerative farms, because they're going to be higher in nutrients. And I think the first thing for magnesium status, beyond just intake is sort of what taxes your magnesium status so that would be like oxidative stress um certain medications like diuretics insulin proton pump inhibitors like these acid suppressors um having high insulin levels which basically causes you to lose magnesium out in the urine first fixing all those issues right high sugar intake and everything that can deplete magnesium is probably the first step because if you're taxing your status or constantly losing magnesium, I don't think just taking magnesium as a supplement or getting it through the diet is going to do that much good. I mean, it's going to help, but you got to fix the root problems first.
1: Yeah, yeah, like it, because uh, then you'll have to keep on taking uh, that l- larger intake of magnesium uh, because you're like leaking out uh, more of it on a continual basis. And like the more stressed out you are, and uh, more you know inflamed or under the, the stress, then uh, you do need uh, more magnesium.
0: It's sort of like, like you have a hole in a boat and you're out in the ocean and you're just, you're just like, instead of fixing the hole, you're just kind of like throwing the water over like the the side of the boat and you're only going to get marginal benefits doing that. But, um, I mean, I do think that it is important too, that if you can't get high quality foods, um, that supplementation does play a role a hundred percent because, you know, the estimates back from the Paleolithic times have estimated our intake of magnesium to be around 600 milligrams per day, um, and it, but as high as 1,000. And the average person is only eating about 200 to 250 milligrams of magnesium. So, I mean, to cover your bases, if you're not able to eat a nutrient-dense diet or you're, you're not sure if your food has good amounts of magnesium – um, supplementation may be important. Now foods that are high in magnesium would be things like, um, like cacao, spinach, um, nuts and seeds, but their bioavailability is a little bit lower, right? So you can get magnesium through, um, meat, but I think, how I typically also add magnesium to my diet is through drinking mineral waters because it's already sort of dissolved and ionized and it's very easy to absorb magnesium once it's dissolved in solution and so typically I probably get an extra 100 to 150 milligrams of magnesium through through just natural mineral waters.
1: Mm. What do you think about these molecular hydrogen tablets that have the ionized magnesium combined there?
0: So I think um, Hydrogen is important. I haven't done a ton of research on molecular hydrogen, like exogenous intake. I do think there are some studies that show benefit, but you can naturally boost um, hydrogen sulfide through supplementation, like N acetylcysteine actually helps boost it, taurine helps boost it. And hydrogen sulfide sort of works like nitric oxide in the body, it sort of has this, you know, um, you know blood vessel uh, health promoting properties and even antiviral properties as well. Um, it bound to magnesium. I, I haven't seen anything like that before. Are you saying like there's supplements that have high molecular hydrogen bound to magnesium?
1: Yeah. Like the, uh, tablets, uh, molecular hydrogen tablets that you put into water, they have a uh, magnesium in, in there.
0: Uh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's just, um, like a synergistic effect or, or if it helps. I don't think it would help with absorption having it in there.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, That's interesting maybe you get like maybe you get like just a more better absorption for the magnesium itself rather than supporting the absorption of the hydrogen
0: yeah potentially I'm I'm not really
1: sure Um, what about you you mentioned the insulin resistance so like you know diet and metabolic health is also pretty uh, huge uh, for uh, the immune system
0: yeah so I mean recently a couple months ago uh, there was a, a study that was published and it showed that if you have metabolic syndrome you're at a three and a half fold higher risk of dying from COVID and you're at a four and a half fold higher risk of ending up in the ICU. So essentially metabolic syndrome for people who don't know what it is, it's, it's five different things. It's an elevation in blood glucose, blood pressure, waist circumference, and triglycerides and a reduction in HDL. If you have three or more of those five, you are considered to have metabolic syndrome. And so essentially metabolic syndrome is insulin resistance. It's just an easy way to measure it without having to measure like HOMA IR or, you know, doing a insulin assay after an oral glucose tolerance test. This is, it's just a quicker, easier way what doctors typically order. And so essentially, if you have three of those five, you can pretty much guarantee you have insulin resistance and probably high insulin levels as well. And so when the cell is insulin resistant, we need to understand, too, that the insulin is not just a fat storing hormone or um, puts glucose into the cell. Insulin is important for bringing nutrients into the cell. So if a cell becomes resistant to insulin, now you can't get magnesium or potassium into the cell. There's other nutrients, too, that are sensitive to insulin, and when you can't get nutrients into the cell, well, then that's a huge deal because we just discussed how magnesium in the cell controls immune function. So the other sort of part about it is that you start spilling more nutrients out in the urine when you have high insulin levels like magnesium and calcium. And so it's, it's essentially, it's, it's eating a high sugar diet is one of the main drivers of insulin resistance and high insulin levels. And it's just, it's worse than just um, like uh, most people view sugar as um, not harmful, just sort of empty calories, but actually we need to view it as like an anti-nutrient and something that increases oxidative stress and actually taxes and depletes you of nutrients.
1: Right. And uh, it also promotes the kind of accumulation of a visceral fat, so, which is like the internal fat around the organs and in between organs that uh, just the uh, starts to secrete like these pro-inflammatory cytokines, which, uh, you know, suppress the immune system and eventually lead to like metabolic syndrome.
0: Yeah, so fructose can actually um, sort of increase the conversion of glucose to fructose in the body. And that can sort of activate parts of the brain that increase the production of cortisol and noradrenaline and the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. And we know the renin angiotensin aldosterone system is highly associated with cytokine storm, if that's activated. We know stress hormones like noradrenaline and cortisol inhibit immune function. So essentially, you have sugar sort of stresses out the body, like literally increases stress hormones, which suppresses immune function. So that's another sort of, you know, blow to the immune system when you overconsume refined carbs and sugar
1: yeah yeah and uh like w- what we discovered uh or one of the studies that we uh, use in the book uh also kind of indicates that um like hyperglycemia when you constantly elevated uh, blood sugar it uh, mimics the same pro-inflammatory uh, kind of a uh, pathway that leads to the cytokine storm as well by using the same receptor to get into the cell uh, which was the hmgb1 like uh uh, high mobility, uh, box group one, sure. <laughs> which is a mouthful, but uh, essentially yeah, like you, you, the hyperglycemia creates the same, uh, environment around the cell uh, that gets into the cell using the same receptor. And, um, uh, the receptor for advanced glycation end product products, uh, rage is also involved there. So hyperglycemia essentially kind of leads to also this, uh, cytokine storm eventually by promoting, uh, NFKB and other uh, pro-inflammatory, uh, cytokines.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, um, HMGB1 or high um, well, high molecular group box one, yeah. which is which is essentially a, what's called a disease um, or a damaged associated uh, molecular pattern, um, a DAMP uh, sort of is secreted by immune cells um, when there's viruses or vir- viral infections, and essentially they can activate toll-like receptors, um, which can activate uh, nuclear factor kappa beta, and then activate NLRP3 inflammasomes, which sort of activate pro-inflammatory interleukins. So you have, most people know um, interleukin-1 beta. uh, To convert the pro-interleukin-1 beta to the active form, that's where NLRP3 inflammasome, that's how it works, that's how it's inflammatory. It sort of activates pro-interleukins to active forms. And you're, you're 100% right. The receptor for advanced glycation end products, RAGE, can also be sort of, t- it takes up HMGb1 um, into the cell. And then once the RAGE receptor has taken it up, then it can activate nuclear factor kappa beta, NLRP3 inflammasomes. And then there's this feedback cycle. So then the NLRP3 inflammasome further increases the production of damage-associated molecular patterns, um, and it's just like this vicious cycle of inflammation.
1: Yeah. And uh, therefore, like uh, the key um, step to prevent the onset of uh, the cytokine storm is to kind of, uh, of course, yeah, suppress the pro-inflammatory cytokines, but also uh, kind of inhibit uh, HMGB1 and uh, lower the hyperglycemia. Yep. Yeah. and you, you also like wrote a book about uh, the new not another book about a study about like the nutraceuticals that can uh, do that and uh, also help with uh, this infection
0: yeah so so essentially we um, our first publication was on nutraceuticals that have potential to boost the type 1 interferon response and then there are, it's basically those same nutrients essentially seem to also um, inhibit uh, hmgb one release, but then there's additional ones too that we cover in the book um, that have those properties like, like quercetin, which is in um, the skins of you know, certain uh, uh, plant foods. Um, but essentially what you have is, in order to, the best way to sort of inhibit oxidative stress is to create a little bit in your body and allow your body to then upregulate its own antioxidant defense enzymes. So essentially that's NRF2 activators. So in the book in the in the publication we sort of said if if someone has, you know, cytokine storm potential uh, nutraceuticals that could possibly help would be NRF2 activators, which would be alpha lipoic acid ferulic acid, which you can form through drinking coffee, or certain uh, whole grains have high amounts of ferulic acid, Um, and uh, broccoli sprouts, which contain sulforaphane, um, are essentially NRF2 activators, which then boost all your antioxidant defense enzymes. And then, um, essentially, Inflammation is what suppresses our body's own production of type one interferon. So anything that sort of boosts glutathione is also going to be helpful. So that would be things like N-acetylcysteine, glutathione, glycine, collagen, um, even taurine too, because taurine is formed from cysteine. So if you take taurine, you're going to reduce the shunting of cysteine to form taurine and and sort of increase the shunting of cysteine to form glutathione.
1: Mm, Yeah. Yeah, and uh, some other things that also help to uh, recycle glutathione, like vitamin C, for example.
0: Yeah, um, uh, so uh, well, glu- so vitamin C yeah, helps recycle vitamin E, uh, glutathione helps recycle vitamin C, but uh, any type of oxidative stress is going to deplete glutathione levels. And so um, selenium is important for maintaining good glutathione status, so is magnesium. And... Um, so essentially glutathione, if people don't know it's your, your master antioxidant. And it seems to be very depleted in people who have severe COVID-19
1: outcomes. Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, what, what, what would be, what, what would be like, what do you think, um, how can you like just, um, you know, there's, uh, some people get like very severe symptoms from uh, COVID, uh, some others get uh, less severe and some others don't experience at all. So what is, what do you think is the kind of, uh, key uh, differentiating uh, factor?
0: is probably a lot to do with, um, you know, poor metabolic health, poor nutrient status, and then essentially just a poor functioning adaptive immune system. And so you have the innate immune system having to take control of killing the virus in an inflammatory way. And essentially that's, and you don't have any antioxidants to sort of calm down the inflammatory cytokine storm afterwards. So the, the, the body actually has several Antioxidant enzymes, Um, you know, one of them is thioredoxin reductase, um, which needs methionine sulfoxide reductase to work. And both of those antioxidant enzymes require selenium. And so we've seen that uh, populations that have a low selenium intake have about a threefold higher risk of having worse COVID-19 outcomes. So I mean, then that's just one nutrient. And sort of how I like to think about to get people to understand how important selenium is, is some people have heard of something called Kishan disease, where um, it's a province in China, Kishan, and it's associated with very low selenium in the soil and hence low selenium in the food. And people can develop cardiomyopathy uh, or Kishan disease from low selenium intake. But what a lot of people don't realize is it's actually also due to an infection from an RNA virus called Coxsackie virus. Mm. So Coxsackie virus can cause hand mouth and foot disease, but sometimes it doesn't cause anything or it can be very severe and lead to cardiomyopathy if you're just deficient in selenium. So it goes to show you an essentially a non-virulent virus like Coxsackie can become extremely virulent. If you simply are lacking one nutrient, that being selenium, because if you cheat, treat people with Kashan disease, which is selenium, that fixes the cardiomyopathy.
1: Hmm. Well, we have seen all
0: these post-COVID complications, and so we already know the post-COCSI complication is cardiomyopathy, and we know the treatment for that is selenium. So I wonder how many post-COVID complications there are, which we know there are a lot, right? Strokes, heart attacks. Um, pulmonary um, embolisms are caused by potentially nutrient deficiencies. We haven't figured out yet which one's adding back, but we've published, um, we published a couple papers that have antithrombotic potential for certain nutraceuticals like citrulline, um, the biotin uh, folate or folic acid. Um, th- essentially those increase the effects of nitric oxide, um, biotin and uh uh, folate do that through increasing cyclic gmp citrulline does that through increasing nitric oxide um and then sort of the same nutraceuticals that we had uh, published that have antioxidant effects also have seem to have anti thrombotic potential as well
1: hmm. and uh, magnesium as well if i'm not mistaken yeah
0: yes 100%
1: yeah yeah uh yeah yeah i totally agree and i think uh, like uh one of the kind of maybe, if you, were to, if you were to kind of narrow it down to one particular thing, well, it's not like one particular thing, but if you were to try, try to narrow it down to one thing, then it could be like this uh, overall immunosenescence and uh, immunodeficiencies. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily, you know, have to be, uh, like, we, as we get older, our immune system does deteriorate, which is, you know, describes immunosenescence. But you can also get immunosenescence faster if you have, like, you know, metabolic syndrome, you're obese uh, you have nutrient deficiencies and all things. Uh, so yeah, like, um, that's why like maybe some younger people are also having problems with their immune system because their immune system is essentially aging very rapidly. And, uh, you know, that makes them more vulnerable to, uh, just overall illness.
0: And you can see that too, where in the United States and in the UK, um, COVID is much more severe than certain other places. And it probably has to do with our poor metabolic health. Um, you know, essentially, you know, the virulence of a virus depends on your own metabolic health. And, and that's sort of kind of what we drive home uh, with the book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and like the unfortunate case is also that if you have like uh, poorer metabolic health, then you're also shedding the virus for longer and uh, you also get infected yourself for longer. So yeah, it's a double whammy. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, essentially, what we sort of wrote in the book is that if you have a population that is obese and has metabolic syndrome, you're going to get a higher viral load, you're going to carry the virus for longer, and there's a higher chance for it to mutate. And so you're, you're essentially creating potentially super viruses, um, when you're a population that it has less um, effective metabolic health and effective defenses against viruses, because it just gives the virus more time to mutate in the body. Uh, And essentially we see that too with uh, nutrient deficiencies. Um, So for example, uh, mice that are deficient in selenium, uh, they have more, the virus infection is more lethal, leads to worse pathology, and it leads to an increase in mutations. And so just being deficient in nutrients is going to increase the susceptibility of of the virus mutating more when you get infected. And then, We sort of covered um, things like heat and cold and sort of how to, you know, boost heat shock proteins that have antiviral effects as well, or cold shock proteins. And I think that was an important uh, key thing of the book as well.
1: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And there is a quite a lot of uh, research you know, decades ago even, that shows uh, that the heat, regular heat exposure with the saunas is uh, very uh, beneficial in reducing the risk of influenza and reducing the chance of catching the common cold uh, and pneumonia uh, and uh, other things. So uh, it is has a pretty uh, profound, um, you know, immunostrengthening effect, and it does, like, uh, destroy, uh, like, pathogens and viruses with the heat as well. Like, even the WHO has, like, a page uh, on their website uh, that says that... Uh, high heat uh, can destroy like the SARS uh, virus?
0: Yeah, so es- essentially um, another first line defense against viruses that we evolved you know, over millions of years and it's been around th- you know, throughout all mammals is a fever. And the reason why we develop a fever is because that boosts core body temperature. And we've developed defense mechanisms through that increase in core body temperature to release what's called heat shock proteins. And essentially, um, in order for a virus to replicate, it has to export its viral ribonucleoprotein complex out of the cell. And in order for that to happen, a protein called M1 protein needs to dock onto that complex to export it out. Well, heat shock protein 70 can bind to that complex and prevent M1 protein from binding and prevents the ribonucleo complex from being exported. And so essentially heat shock proteins and via you know, things like sauna or exercising in the heat through increasing your core body temperature does have antiviral effects.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, like the sauna does it, uh, infrared sauna does it, uh, you know, yoga can do it and exercise does it as well. So just anything that uh, releases these heat shock proteins can have like a positive effect uh, on that, uh, but um, re- regular. I, I think like the regular sauna itself is also may have like some additional benefits in in terms of uh, uh, like uh, you know sweating out the to- uh, you know, heavy metals and other uh, toxins.
0: Right, and so um, what you were referring to on the WHO, uh, it's true that uh, they do have data if the temperature is one hundred and thirty three degrees Fahrenheit there is rapid killing of the SARS virus. Now you'll never be able to get your lungs to 133 degrees. So we don't think it's going to have that type of mechanism in the lungs, but you do heat up the nasal passages and you do heat up the mouth. And I don't necessarily um, know if you can get your nasal passages or the mouth to 133 degrees. Uh, I don't think there's been any studies to that, but certainly just breathing hot air, through the nose or through the mouth has been shown to reduce the symptoms of upper respiratory viruses by like two days, Mm. not even boosting core body temperature, simply just breathing hot air. Um, So that seems to have an effect as well. And even doing hypertonic saline nasal irrigation with hypertonic saline gargling has, if you can do that quick enough within 48 hours of an upper respiratory tract infection, um, studies have shown a reduction in the duration of symptoms by two days, a decrease in medication use by 36%, a decrease in household spreading of the virus by 35%, wow. um, which is interesting. And then a significant reduction in viral load as well. So salt has both topical antiviral and antimicrobial cells, uh, um, effects and in, in cells, salt has been shown to uh, kill both DNA and RNA enveloped and non-enveloped viruses. Right? Essentially, salt was before we had refrigeration; it was the you know universal preservative um, for those kind of antiviral, antibacterial effects.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and. Uh... One thing to note about like the uh, heat is that, yeah, like, I don't think yeah, you're going to raise your uh, lung temperature to the required uh, temperature, but I, I think it doesn't really matter at that point either, because like you said, your body responds to the heat by activating these heat shock proteins, and then the heat shock proteins go in there and do the job for you, so to say, <laughs> so you don't have to you know, uh, use a flamethrower to kill the, uh, you know, these uh, pathogens. Uh, you can, you, the body is going to do it itself with these uh, heat shock proteins.
0: Exactly. And then the other thing to, to realize too is sauna is a hormetic stressor. So it's, it causes the breakdown of your own proteins, and then heat shock proteins are released to sort of repair those damaged proteins. Yeah. It, it essentially makes your body stronger. And so anything you can do from a hormetic perspective with appropriate repair is going to make all your cells more resilient. Right. And so you're essentially creating a greater force field around yourself by increasing the health of your own cells, sort of hitting the sauna numerous times a week. And we've seen this in animal studies. If you heat shock mice prior to infecting them with lethal avian influenza, the mortality is significantly reduced. The lung pathology, the viral replication is significantly reduced. So even doing it before getting the virus uh at least in animal models has shown pretty interesting results.
1: Yeah. Like uh, it describes this, uh, preconditioning hormesis that uh, increases resilience. So if your body has been exposed to a particular stressor like the heat uh, or exercise, then it's more able to tolerate it and it's gonna experience less of the negative side effects from it as well. And the kind of interesting and the kind of fascinating thing about it is that like exercise also activates this HMgb1 uh, uh, protein that uh, is involved is, uh, in the cytokine storm. So if you're, the idea is that if you are exercising regularly and you're like doing the saunas, then your body is already kind of at least it get, it's experiencing this uh, HMGb one and this small amount of inflammation uh, beforehand, and thus it's able to deal with it better when you actually get you know exposed to a larger exposure of it. Uh, so it's a, it's an a, this you know exercise regular exercise does boost the immune system and it does increase this uh, overall resilience uh, as a result of that as well. Exactly,
0: it's like the the saying "What doesn't kill you makes you stronger." That's exactly what is happening with chronic, moderate exercise, um, you know, moderate doses of sauna, um, even potentially moderate doses of cold. Uh, although I think you have to be a little bit careful with timing of cold therapy because it can yeah. prevent the benefits of exercise. So you just got to just like everything, you got to figure out how to time things. Yeah. But sort of what we discussed too was what's the appropriate dose of exercise. And you and I had sort of, you know, come to the summation that if you are exercising at a sort of strenuous, very heavy, either lifting very heavy and hard or um, running fast for over an hour, that will have a suppressive effect on the immune system. And you and I sort of said, it's not like you, you shouldn't ever exercise hard for over an hour. Just realize that that will make you more susceptible to upper respiratory tract infections. And we sort of kind of came up with a package of potential ways to sort of offset that. If you're someone who likes running marathons, well, obviously you have to run longer than an hour. So what can you do? And we sort of came up with some strategies that had clinical trials like vitamin C, beta glucan, uh, baker's yeast, beta glucan, uh, selenium, zinc and copper, Things like that seem to have the most evidence for potentially offsetting the significant increased risk in upper respiratory tract infections with prolonged exercise, which can be anywhere from two to six-fold higher risk of upper respiratory infection, whereas if you have moderate exercise, which is an hour or less, that can reduce your risk by about 50% of upper respiratory tract infections
1: yeah like exercise uh shortly after the exercise you get weaker like both your muscles and your like strength it does diminish a little bit and your immune system does also take like a small uh, dive but it kind of super compensates afterwards and uh it just takes time so if you're like you know uh, the problem is that if you you know do like a long exercise session over an hour and then you also combine it with like the other stresses like sleep deprivation or uh traveling and uh, the cold or something then you may just get infected because of uh you come off from this uh slightly uh, immunocompromised state uh, whereas if you were to you know not exercise beforehand then you wouldn't uh, get the, you would like have a lower chance of uh, getting sick and uh, yeah there are some studies that also show that the polyphenols uh, with you know blueberry powder and uh, green tea and those things uh, they have been shown to kind of uh, mitigate uh, that uh, risk a little bit uh, by, uh, reducing the chance of uh, you know reducing the uh, slight uh, immunodepression. Immuno
0: exactly so it's kind of like the dose makes the poison or the treatment and i think moderate exercise between 30 to 60 minutes maybe up to five times a week seems to be optimal and if you're going to do more high intensity you probably want to drop that down to three or four times a week and mm-hmm. just may not want to go over that hour mark which seems to be sort of that threshold where you're overtaxing the immune system
1: yeah and uh, like what about the sauna like what is the optimal time frame for doing that
0: so it depends on the person some people are very good at sweating and sort of cooling off and then other people they almost turn red they don't sweat much and they don't cool off that well so you know it's always dependent on the person um if you are cleared by your doctor to be able to do a sauna um starting at a lower temperature and slowly working up is a smart idea so essentially maybe you start at 10 minutes for infrared maybe you start at 130 degrees fahrenheit and the optimal, once you progressively go up, uh, it needs to be at least 20 minutes. I mean, the studies are pretty clear about that in regards to reducing, um, well, the studies that have associated sauna use with a lower risk of cardiovascular events are when the duration is 20 minutes or longer. Uh, so that seems, so between the 20, and you can feel it. Uh, once you start hitting the 20 to 30 minute mark, you start getting antsy. You can feel your proteins breaking down essentially. That's that's why you start you sort of get antsy like man I kind of need to get out of this sauna. That feeling is the breakdown of your proteins. And so you need that to happen in order to really start activating heat shock protein, really start getting some of the what uh, you know the hormetic effects of sauna. Um, And then with traditional sauna, you have to go higher and and they typically are higher temperature anywhere. You you can find traditional saunas that go up to 250 degrees Fahrenheit. They work differently. Traditional is through convection heat. Uh, Infrared uses both convection heat as well as heating you from the inside out. And you do get some additional benefits from the infrared as far as activating um, TRPV1 which has uh, insulin sensitizing effects and it activating cytochrome C oxidase, which improves ATP production. And you do seem to get a little bit better of a nitric oxide boost through the addition of infrared, but traditional saunas are still amazing and are still going to provide a lot of the benefits. You're going to still get the heat shock protein release as well.
1: Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I do. I uh, enjoy both of them. So uh, they're quite uh, amazing. Uh, Do do you take any like um, supplements or something to boost the effectiveness of the sauna or uh, kind of maybe like some salted water or something?
0: So sauna does seem to liberate uh, toxins from the skin. Some people will take binders, uh, sort of like chlorella or cilantro or something like that to, if, if you're releasing toxins, how do we maybe bind them in the gastrointestinal tract? Because you can get this sort of enterohepatic recycling of the toxins. So it's almost like with fasting too, um, you get a release of persistent organic pollutants from the adipose tissue that you've accumulated. And so, uh, sort of what can you do to bind those toxins once you release them and and sort of essentially poop them out? Um, you know, some people have sort of toyed with things like, um, uh, the chlorella, the cilantro, um, and char activated charcoal is another potential. I have never uh, tried that or played that game, um, but that's a potential way to sort of enhance the detoxing effects of sauna. Some people have said, um, there's like this niacin protocol that sort of helps too with, uh, you know, releasing toxins out of the adipose tissue as well. Um, in addition to sauna therapy and there, there was a, a doctor who made that niacin protocol pretty famous. Um, and he also used uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids as well with that protocol. Um, but the supplements that I personally take, um, in regards to immune function is I'm going to start taking yeast beta glucan, uh, continuously because that, that's almost a, a hormetic uh, sort of way to activate the immune system. Because what you're essentially doing is you're telling the immune system that there's a, a potential pathogen because you're, you're taking the baker's yeast, which is the cell wall of yeast. And so that actually activates, um, Uh, receptor pathogen receptors and so now that stimulates the immune system it puts it more on a higher immunosurveillance which is a good thing if you get an infection because now the immune system is much more uh, ramped up the cytotoxicity of your immune cells are much better and you can take that on a consistent basis and it seems to be a more natural uh, sort of way to boost the immune system that that isn't sort of know, a big tax on the immune system, so to speak. So I'll probably do that for three or four months during the winter months. And then um, if, you know, sort of, I just make sure obviously all nutrients are optimized. And then if I ever were to get um, a viral infection, I would absolutely take n cysteine. I would consider taking a, a bioavailable form of glutathione. Um, elder, I, I would do elderberry too, um, because there, there is a meta-analysis with elderberry that it reduces the duration of the common cold anywhere from two to four days, but you need to find a quality elderberry. So the goal would be to find something that is 10 to 15% standardized anthocyanins because it's the anthocyanins that have all these antiviral effects. So So sort of plant polyphenols for some reason have this ability to sort of prevent viruses from infecting a cell, reduces the replication, and then also activates antioxidant enzymes. So for some reason, plant polyphenols seem to have that NRF two boosting effect. Hmm. Um, but besides those, I would um, I would definitely take taurine, glycine. I take collagen every day in my coffee, um, and that's pretty much it. I mean, there's I do do K two and vitamin D and some cod liver oil and omega threes. But, um, you know, yeah. I don't want to, the, the list could go on and on, to be honest.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, look, the book uh, does give you a lot of uh, different uh, nutraceuticals as well. Uh, and like, yeah, like the polyphenols and other, these uh, beta-glucans and other plant compounds, they just follow the similar this hormetic effect uh, that, uh, you know, the small amount of exposure can be good for uh, kind of entraining the immune system to deal with uh, this, this kind of stress and, uh, you know, uh, activate also, also these uh, defense pa- pathways.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, Well, like, is there anything uh, you want to maybe wrap up on as well? Because uh, we don't want to, you know, give everything away because the book itself uh, covers basically everything about the immune system. Like we cover uh, inflammation, uh, the autoimmunity, even like cancer, uh, the kind of connection between immunity and cancer. What's the link there and kind of how these uh, immunodeficiencies will lead to eventually cancer. And, uh, you know, we talk about a little bit of COVID and, uh, but it's also like only like one chapter. Or so the book itself includes, yeah, a whole lot of different topics. Uh, is there anything you want to mention, uh, as a kind of wrap her up?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, getting the book is, is super important because we don't just talk about the science. We actually show a lot of good graphics and how these things work. And we give a nice sort of, here's what you can do to sort of. Um, boost the immune system via sauna or via how to improve sleep or, you know, it's, it's almost like every chapter is sort of like a how to as well, which I think we did a really good job with. So um, like you said, we don't want to give all the secrets away, but there's a lot more that we talk about in the book. So I, th- I definitely think it's a really good resource that everyone should have for their immune health.
1: Yeah, absolutely agree. And uh, yeah, who was I uh... Great uh, to talk with you again. And like uh, where, before I ask my last, my last question, uh, where can people learn more about you and your work?
0: So um, drjamesdenek.com is my website. And if people want to pick up our book, go to Amazon. It's on, you know, all Amazon markets.
1: Yeah, that's good. And uh, I want to do like a, a different kind of question for the end. Like a, what's the one thing that you're going to definitely do in preparation for the, like the coming uh, flu season or like the winter?
0: So I am. Uh, I actually bought a freezer for my basement. I'm going to stock up on a ton of meat because <laughs> when the first wave of COVID happened, I couldn't get meat at the grocery store. I had to like <laughs> find like 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 uh, mom and pop stores. So that's yeah. like uh, I'm starting to stock up on some of the things like water, um, uh, you know, meat, and then you know, prepping for, I, I made sure to really get some good sunlight to sort of you know boost my vitamin d levels and i got i got my sauna in the basement so I'm, i think i'm ready to go for the winter
1: <laughs> yeah that's a good advice like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure so uh, never never hurts to gonna you know, have a little bit of make extra food around
0: that's right yep
1: <laughs> well it was good talking with you and uh, yeah i'll see you around you too sam all right that's it for this episode if you want to support us then check out the immunity fix on amazon and make sure you leave us a review But other than that, thanks for listening. My name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.